Hey, y'all, I'm going to take a second to give a quick shout out to the official mortgage lender of the Hunt Lift Deep podcast. That's Casey Burns of Prime Lending Mortgage. I've known Casey for 10 years and he's the only lender I use. I've used Casey to purchase two houses and the process has been seamless and easy each time. He's the heart of an educator and he truly cares about what's best for his clients. He specializes in VA loans, but can handle FHA, conventional investment loans as well. He's a true expert and specialist in his field and there's no one I recommend more than Casey. You can contact Casey at casey.burns at primelending.com. Reach him by phone at 919-710-1864. You can also check out all his reviews at www.closewithkc.com. Thanks, y'all. Yeah, sounds good. But no, I mean, kind of going back to what you were saying, Perry, um, it's kind of eye-opening. You know, a lot of people focus on, you know, just food plots. And let's say, I think, it's what like three to ten percent of the overall acreage is kind of like the ideal or you know what you want to plant food plots in your overall land mass. But you know why focus on just that say ten percent when you know with this sixty-one acres I can manage this entire sixty-one acres to provide you know food cover and everything versus just putting all my effort into planting let's say ten acres or six acres worth of food plots. Um, it's, you know, you could save a lot of time and money, like we were saying, I mean, just by starting up a chainsaw and striking a match and just utilizing what, uh, God has provided for us. And the reality is you can have the nicest, sexiest food plot that you want, but if you don't have a place where those mature bucks are going to feel secure, um, during hunting season, during the time that you're actually out there with a bow or a rifle in your hand they're not going to be there or they're at least likely not going to be there during daylight. You know, they may cruise through after dark when they can come get a bite to eat. Um, and they know they're not going to be harassed, but they're going to be somewhere else on the neighbor's property. That's got some, some dense thick shit that, you know, that makes them feel secure. And so you hit it earlier and I I wanted to emphasize it. I, I remember, um, Derek, who who's on the you know on the team and yourself as well Carter both of y'all were we were talking a while back about you know things you could do on your specific properties and I said just you know basically what you laid out a little while ago Brett which is step back um, from a you know from a thirty thousand foot level and and do a little bit of scouting around on your neighbor's properties I don't mean obviously boots on the ground but I just mean you know on Onyx or hell you can get on Google Earth whatever it doesn't matter. And start to start to see what is, you know, what's the what's the dominant, um, you know, uh, vegetation types that are on the landscape. What's what's missing in terms of a habitat perspective? And you may realize that the food plots is not going to be your area. You know, your your where you're going to get the most bang for your buck. Um, you might want to emphasize something like cover on your particular property to to really you know, if, if those bucks have a place that they can feel secure and that's on your dirt and not your neighbors, you might have a better chance of shooting it than he does. Even if he does have the nicest food plot in the world. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I mean that you see it on Facebook and forum posts all the time. These guys are like, Oh, I had this deer coming in at, you know, 10 o'clock at night. What can I do to bring him in? What can I put out to bring him in in daylight? And it's like, well, you either have to move closer or provide that, thick cover that safety cover for them to feel comfortable to show up in daylight and a lot of times these older deer i mean even the older does and bucks they kind of access these you know 
feeders, food plots. I mean, that's essentially a kill zone for a hunter and, you know, a coyote, bobcat, something like that. So these deer, a lot of times are going to access it from the downwind side. So a lot of times they're going to sit in the thickest cover nearby and scent check that entire danger zone, whether it's a water hole, food plot, feeder, yada, yada. So the biggest thing is you want that thick safety cover in close proximity. And I know the uh, MSU Deer Lab just came out with one of their big GPS collar studies. And it was uh, basically it was one of their properties. They sectioned it off, put a bunch of GPS collars on a bunch of bucks from two years old to like six or seven years old, whatever. And they put out hunters and the hunters had the GPS collars. And basically they found was the bucks just went to the thicker cover and they might walk a mile in daylight, but you could walk a mile in daylight on a hundred yard football field, or you can walk, you know, a straight mile. And they were finding was a lot of these mature bucks were staying in these areas that were, you know, one or two football field, you know, in size versus going from walking in a straight line, one mile. I forgot the the technical scientific term they had for it, but it was kind of eye opening, right? So it just goes to show the higher the pressure and the poorer the cover and habitat, you know, it just kind of locks these deer down. I mean, you can utilize that to your benefit, but um, I would rather, you know, maximize my property than just try and have one, you know, thick spot. Yeah, it makes all the sense of the world. And I mean, we, we've all seen, you know, during the rut, right, you know, these mature bucks, they get they get kind of crazy and they'll they'll do things out of the ordinary. But if you if you take away that that two to three, four week window, whatever it is, um, for the, for the rut in your area. And, and you realize that a mature buck is extremely content in a lot of, in a lot of cases to shrink his home range. If he's not actively out, you know, looking for does, he, he doesn't need that much area. Now he may move from one core spot to another, but when he's in that core spot, I mean, he just hunkers down. And, um, if you haven't addressed providing that type of, of, uh, of need for him through your habitat management on your property. Um, you're, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot. Well, it's all about working the puzzle, right? And especially for, if you have a smaller property, you're not out by any means. And like you've already mentioned, it's, you got to provide or, you know, look for what your neighbors do or don't have. And like you said, Brett, you like to zoom out a mile and that helps you decide what you're going to put in your food plots. And maybe you don't have the capabilities to put in a food plot, but, okay, what do I have? Do I have water? Do I have cover? What pieces do I have? Because really you only need to be in the right place at the right time one more time than your neighbor, right? I mean, that's that's all it comes down to. You just got to be at the right spot, you know, working the problem and, and be one step ahead, which is doable. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, there's so many things that we can manipulate outside of food plots, right? Like I said, you can do prescribed fire, or you can bust out the uh, the chainsaw or a hatchet and you can get into the timber stand improvement, right? You can do, I know a lot of guys talk about hinge cuts, or you can break it down simpler, do hack and squirts. Um, depending on the size of your property, you can bring in a logger and they can do select cuts. Most of them prefer to do clear cuts, but that's not really ideal a lot of the times unless you have a lot of property. Um, but I mean, yeah, even you know, something simple as like edge feathering, right? Where you go in and you just drop a couple of trees and you just promote a transitional space. So it doesn't go from 
thick woods to an open field where you just have this nice little transition where let's say there's a buck that's cruising in this food plot or in the woods he has to get that visual on that field he has to go out there right so if you hit a grunt or a rattle he doesn't have to sit in those woods and just look out and he doesn't see anything out there where he has to have that you know that transition space and it's also a key component for quail and turkey especially with their poults i mean it's a good safe haven where they can go out in the food plot and feed and go bug and if a predator comes they can go hit that transitional space for that cover as well so that's another aspect where you can just manipulate the habitat to you know achieve your goals essentially the reality is there's there's very few species especially here in the southeast that um are really well suited to like a, a you know, a big uniform mature forest ecosystem. I mean, most of the ones that are, are songbirds. Um, there's a handful of songbirds that, that really do well in those and, and songbirds are, are specialists usually, but most of the wildlife and, and particularly most of the game that we're after, that's what they like. They like transitions. They like edges. It's why you see, you know, things like foxes traveling up and down fence rows um, it's why you see, you know, bobcats hunting in those areas. It's why you see turkeys and quail raising their young in this, in this thick cover. That's not, you know, a wide open, mature hardwood forest or a mature, um, you know, pine plantation. Those are those for, for a lot of the species that, that we're interested in. Those can, can kind of be, um, just areas where they're cruising through and they're not spending a whole lot of their time because they don't have that, that necessary security component there. Oh yeah, absolutely. And another thing, kind of the segue into the whole, uh, I know a lot of guys, uh, hone in on mock scrapes and water holes and stuff like that. And that's a good thing that you can do this time of year. Um, I've actually gotten into, uh, some buddies have invested in hemp rope. I just got, uh, like three eighths inch, um, just kind of manila rope and we're starting to make mock scrapes with those. Um, I've never really done anything like that, but I'm actually starting to see some pretty good success, um, utilizing and manipulating with the mock scrapes using ropes and you can use vines as well. Um, and that's another thing that you can just kind of complement in with these transitional areas. You can essentially funnel these deer and how they travel with these, uh, TSI cuts and these edge featherings. You can kind of corral where you want them to travel and when you get a good spot you can put in a mock scrape and you can put in a vine or a manila rope like i was talking about and that's a phenomenal spot that you can set up a cell camera and you it does the scouting for you and it's a a pinch point so a lot of those deer going through that area are going to hit that spot so you know what's working your property and most of us are realistically hunting and managing small tracks i mean some of us are lucky to have, you know, a couple hundred or thousand acres, but, uh, I mean, on 61 acres, you know, I'm seeing a lot of these bucks and especially in the rut, I'll have them on the property for two or three days, then they're gone. So I can kind of, when they show up on that cell camera, I know when to go out there and, you know, vice versa. I'm not going to spin my tires and, you know, kind of blow a property out. So that's a key component and these water holes i haven't personally put one in there's a natural spring and creek on the property so i kind of just utilize that you know why work if you don't have to um but those are just two other key components where you can manipulate the habitat um 
to your benefit. Yeah, it's it's one of those it's one of those deals where you can take some of the specific things that we're talking about and then again apply it to your situation. Here in the southeast, water is abundant most everywhere. There's obviously going to be some exceptions to that, but I mean, you know, pretty much every every relatively significant drainage is going to have some sort of water and and the deer aren't traveling um, too far to go find water during this time of year. But you may live in a, in a region, you know, in an area of the country where that may not be the case and water may be one of those limiting factors. And if you, if you kind of step back and, and take that 30,000 foot approach and say, man, um, especially this time of year, if you're starting to do your inventory, if you're, or if you're talking about early season, you know, hunt archery hunts or what have you, if, if water looks like a, a, a limiting factor to you, then make that a goal, make that a priority. And, you know, maybe, maybe you step away from the food plots or, or some of the, the other habitat with, with cover. And maybe you focus on a good consistent water source that's going to be available during the time of year when they need it most. And, and that's going to be, that's going to be a, a gold mine. No, absolutely. Um, water, you know, for us, isn't a huge thing. Um, I know, uh, Jeff Sturgis, he's a big one with, you know, put dropping in water holes and, um, spots and he'll complement a water hole with a mock scrape. And, um, I, I do see it like during the rut, if you can have a good spot where that's going to stop the deer for a shot, especially with uh, like a compound bow archery equipment. Um, that's just something to kind of just, you know, cross your T's, dot your I's type deal in a hunting spot. But like you said, I mean, it's not, ne- it's not necessary, you know, if you just have an extra, you know, stock tank, you just really want to drop in the ground to dig a hole. I mean, you can obviously have at it, but it's, it's not necessary. Not, not down here. I'm real curious about the hemp rope. Um, and you, the success that you're going to have with that, Brett, you'll have to keep me updated on that. Cause that'd be something that'd be really easy to implement up here. And I think Perry HLE gets a discount with, uh, scrape sticks. I think is the name of the company and they have a product called the vine, which kind of sounds like what you're talking about, Brett. Um, I had no idea about it or if it worked or anything like that, but I've been seeing these, you know, licking ropes or whatever you want to call them, uh, pop up and those are kind of gaining some traction across whitetail hunters. It makes sense. Cause if you're, if you're, if you go out and you spend enough time in the woods, during, during the time of year where the, the deer are really starting to, to make a lot of scrapes, they, they have to have a licking branch or they have to have, I mean, you, you're almost never going to find a scrape where they don't have something that they can, they can rub those glands on, right? That's how they're communicating with the other deer in the herd. And that's how these, these mature bucks are taking one inventory of the does that are in the area, uh, in preparation for, for the breeding season. And then two, seeing what other bucks are in the neighborhood as potential competition. And I see it all the time in our area in the Southeast where you'll find this, this scrape and you're like, where's the leaking branch. And then you, you look around and, Oh, there's a grapevine or, Oh, there's, there's a big, um, you know, whatever, whatever vine. And, and that's, it serves the exact same function. And so that rope is, is just mimicking that, you know, the, the natural vines that can serve that same, that same purpose for the books, uh, as, as their, um, you know, utilizing that for their communication. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely keep you updated, Carter, on the whole thing. Like I said, this is my first season um, doing something like that. I know it's pretty popular now. There's a lot of guys doing it. Um, and I think the big thing is they're all saying you want to start it in the summertime and then it becomes kind of a uh, um, a primary scrape 
type deal where during the rut, that's where all those does come, and then that's going to draw in the bucks, and they're going to see which does come into heat and all that good stuff. But I think it's that that vertical aspect, and they like kind of just, you know, like uh, Perry was saying, they disperse their scent gland on it, and I think that manila and that hemp rope holds that scent a little better. And I think that vertical structure, they like uh, it catches their eye or just kind of stands out a little differently. And it, I mean, I guess it's it's different than an oak limb or something. So maybe it stands out to them. I'm not really sure, but I'll definitely keep you updated on it. Yeah, I like that, man. I, I always like trying new stuff, especially now it's like, oh, I got my own property. Like, I'll give it a try. Like, who knows? Like, maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. It's every year it's about gathering data and trying to make the next year even better. So, I mean, you know how that goes. And then, uh, you know, earlier you mentioned you sticking with the habitat management kind of stuff. You, you mentioned some timber stain improvement methods that you like to use. Um, could the two of you kind of unpack where those are appropriate and where those kind of work? Like, I know what a hinge cut is, but like, where is like, where is like girdling a tree appropriate? And, and you, you explained feathering, um, really well, but, uh, where does hinge cutting and girdling kind of fall into your management plan, Brett? Um, I don't really claim to be a professional forester, so I could be botching some of this up, (laughs) but, uh, I know hinge cutting, it's, it's pretty dangerous and you don't want to hinge cut larger trees. Um, you know, you don't want to be hinge cutting these like 40 foot trees. You can kill yourself pretty easily. So the hinge cuts, um, it's kind of species specific. It's like, you don't want to hinge cut like a sweet gum or something like that. You want to hinge cut some of these hardwoods, something that it's essentially just providing horizontal cover, right? You just want to provide a uh, horizontal cover and browse. Whereas, um, a girdle is just essentially mechanically killing a tree. So I girdled, we had uh, some China berry trees and I just girdled and then I sprayed some, uh, some amazapir in there, which amazapir, I mean, it's going to wipe anything out. So that's two different ways you can go about it. Um, girdling works pretty good in places that you don't plan on hunting because you have a dead tree that's standing, right? So eventually those limbs in that tree is going to come down. So you don't want to girdle a tree next to a road or a trail or a tree stand because that's obviously a safety hazard. Yeah. And to expand on that a little bit, I I agree completely. Hinge cutting larger trees is, is an obvious safety hazard. The whole, the whole premise behind hinge cutting is you want to leave enough um, of a hinge. So you, you cut the tree, you know, maybe two thirds of the way through um, depending on the size and the species. Some, some trees are more, or more prone to snap and some are kind of more prone to, to kind of bend. Um, but then you leave enough kind of, of that hinge of the back end, a couple of inches or, or whatever it is to, to prevent that tree from dying or at least dying immediately. And it's still going to have enough of the cambium intact, which is the, the layer that, you know, allows it to transport um, water from the ground up into the, the tree itself and the nutrients um, as well, you leave enough of that intact where the tree stays alive and it, it can provide that cover. And there's, you know, there's some species out there that can actually, you know, they can shoot up from that, that sections that's, that's leaning over, you know, maples and, and, uh, and other things. And you can actually provide some, some brows as well as they're shooting up those, those new sprouts. Um, but w- what I've found and, and what I've done a little bit on our farm, which, which I really like to do is really target the species for girdling that, that one, you don't, like I said, you don't want to hinge cut. You don't want to maybe just cut them because it's going to be, then you're going to have a mess to deal with. If it, um, you know, if you got this, this giant tree, 
target a species uh, where you might want to open up the canopy a little bit, get a little bit of that sunlight in there, get back to some of that, you know, that native forage that we discussed earlier. Um, and a, you know, species that has no long-term timber value. So on our farm, you know, we have a lot of white pine, which is going to eventually be harvested as, as part of a, a timber operation, but we have some scattered yellow, pine, you know, yellow pines in places, some Virginia pines, they provide no timber value. They provide next to no wildlife value, but you girdle it, you kill it, you leave it standing, you get the benefit of the additional sunlight into the forest floor. And then that eventually, you know, that tree dies, it becomes a snag. It provides habitat for other, other species like, you know, woodpeckers. And, and there's a number of mammals that'll, you know, use the holes um, that a woodpecker create, you know, wood ducks. If you do it in an area by water, you can really create a lot of, uh, a lot of habitat for, for other non game or non target species with some snags. And so that's where something like girdling can really be beneficial. And it's, it's easy. It's quick. You know, you can just do a traditional girdle where you just cut it, uh, you know, with the chainsaw, go all the way around the circumference of the tree. You want to make sure you cut enough, far enough in to kill, you know, to sever that cambium layer, or you can, you know, do like the hack and squirt method where you cut it and then you treat it with some sort of uh, chemical to, to hopefully kill it a little bit quicker. Yeah. Thank you for elaborating. I kind of just breezed through that, but yeah, I mean, hack and squirt and girdling, I think are the, the two more common ones. Um, you know, you can drop some trees and hinge cut, but I think if you had to really break it down, it's probably like 10, 15% of the trees are really going to end up, um, hinge cutting. And then you're just going to do a, a mishmash, uh, in my opinion of girdling and hack and squirting, just depending on the species and kind of your overall goals and what you want to do. But I mean, hacking and squirting, I think you want to do one slash with a, uh, a hatchet at like a 45 degree angle. And then you hit it with a squirt bottle and you want to mix a dye in there so you know which trees you've hit. Um, and the herbicides you want to use for that, um, I mean, you can do mixtures of glyphosate. I like using a Mazepir. Um, you can throw in some 2,4-D. Uh, I know some guys get crazy and they do like uh, the basil bark or throw diesel fuel in there just to add some extra kick. Um, it, it really depends on what you want, but you're trying to, you know, kill a tree so you can essentially throw a lot of things in there. But if you do utilize a Mazepir, you need to be careful because it is soil mobile. Whereas a lot of these, you know, like glyphosate, it kills by um, the foliage contact or getting into that cambium layer and it runs up and down the tree into the uh, root system and everything. But a Mazepir can actually go into the, uh, the cambium layer, then it'll go down to the roots and actually sterilize the soil around that tree and it can kill other plants um and i've heard of some mature oak trees getting killed unfortunately because of that they've used you know too much or they did it before a, a heavy rain event and basically it got you know washed out and killed the adjacent plants but so hacking hacking squirting is probably more common because it's safer you don't have a chainsaw you just have a hatchet and you're going in you're hitting uh, depending on the size of the tree i think I could be botching this up, Perry, but it's one hack per like four or six uh, inches of diameter or something like that at a 45 degree angle, um, hit it with a squirt bottle. And um, like those herbicides I mentioned, they'll wipe out a lot of the trees. 
Yeah, and that sounds about right. And the other thing is, is you know, some of that you're just going to ha- kind of have to play with. And it may depend. Some some species have a thicker bark than others. And so, like, you know, there's there's some species out there where one one hack, even if it's a, a relatively small tree, it could still have a, a relatively thick bark. You may have to make sure you kind of get through that that outer bark kind of into the inner layers of the tree. There's other species, you know, maple, et cetera, that have have real thin bark. It may not take as much. And so, you know, it's all trial and error. There's a million YouTube videos out there on all these different TSI um, methods. And and depending on what region you're in, you can, um, you know, you can kind of self-educate there. And, and just, you know, it's like you said, Carter, I mean, a lot of this stuff is is getting popular and folks are figuring out that these are relatively cheap, relatively um, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot of time to, to do some hack and squirt to do, you know, to do some girdling. Um, you can kind of get crazy with, with hinge cutting. <laughs> and I, I've heard, I've heard of folks like, you know, you just, you go out there with the chainsaw at eight o'clock in the morning and the next thing you know, it's lunchtime and you just hinge cut all these trees. And you know, that, that may not be the way to approach it. You know, you want to be, you want to be selective in how you apply whatever method you're you're going to move forward with, and and don't don't go too crazy at first. You know, kind of kind of start small, see what works, see what doesn't, and then you can a- adapt from there. You know what is expensive is herbicides are expensive. Where where do you like to get your herbicides in bulk, Brett? Um. So. I really don't buy too much in bulk anymore, um, but there's a lot of different companies. Uh, Site One is a company. Um, they typically deal more with your uh, residential commercial landscaping, so they're going to have a lot of the fertilizers, but they do have a lot of herbicides. They are going to be kind of more turf grass based, so I don't know if they're going to be uh, well versed on the forestry stuff, you know, a Mazapir, but obviously they'll have glyphosate and 240 and variations of uh, 240. Um, there's another online wholesaler, uh, Keystone Pest Solutions. Um, I've gotten some pretty good deals through there. Obviously, you have to pay for shipping. Um, Do My Own Pest Control. It's another online website. I think they're based out of Georgia. Um, they have some pretty reasonable shipping rates and uh, pretty quick turnaround. I can get herbicides within like two days um, when I order. And then obviously, you have your tried and true tractor supply and, yeah. and Home Depot and stuff like that. Yeah. Now, if I'm getting something wild, uh, typically uh, Tractor Supply does have a Mazapir. Um, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, you just have to look. That's just the the chemical name, a Mazapir. Right. Um, right. I'm drawing a blank on. There's a whole a variety of different names uh, on the actual container. Um, gotcha. That have contain a Mazapir, but yeah, you can do that, or you could just buy pure Mazapir 4SL um online like i said keystone pest solutions they have some pretty good deals on it or you can check out your uh, local co-op um that's another good resource and support local businesses as well yeah i was just curious i loaded up on glyphosate today at tractor supply for august when i get back from canada to spray and do my my uh no-till plots in mid to late august and uh, i just felt like I got punched in the stomach when I was checking out, man. I was like, Oh my gosh, this is ridiculous. Oh yeah. I bet that bank account's screaming right now. Yeah. <laughs> shit got expensive, man. Oh, it's, it's disgusting. Me. It's tripled in price. It seems like it's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, it really is. Um, yeah, man from, uh, I guess other habitat management or land management points of view that we haven't 
covered. What do you do? What's your what's your policy on uh, predators, Brett? Um, so I really haven't been big into trapping and predator management, and that's not because I don't believe in it. I just really don't have the time, um, especially with uh, managing for like turkeys and quail, um, removing those nest predators, you know, possums, raccoons, um, you know, bobcats and stuff like that. Um, that that's critical, especially with how bad off our turkey population is down here. So I definitely believe in it. I just unfortunately really haven't had the uh, the time to implement it. You know, unfortunately working two jobs, uh, it's it's kind of hard to navigate that. But no, I definitely believe in it. Um, as far as if you're strictly deer, um, if you have quality habitat, really it, it's not going to be a huge issue in my opinion. Obviously, you can always thin out a couple of uh, coyotes and wild dogs and bobcats and stuff like that. And uh, But if you really do want to manage for turkeys and quail and you really need to you know, get an aggressive trapping program, and start trapping those raccoons and possums and stuff like that because they really do wreak havoc on these turkey nests. Um, and that's unfortunately been documented pretty well. And I know um, it's been a big discussion recently with the whole turkey population dwindling over the past couple of years. And I see all these posts when the state burns like a WMA in April and everyone's freaking out that they're burning the turkey nest. I'm like, well, the trade-off is they're killing the sweet gums and they're promoting better habitat for turkey nesting. You know, unfortunately, the the trade-off is some of those turkey nests will be um, eradicated, but it's they're promoting better habitat and that's the best time to kill sweet gums for the least amount of effort and money, right? Um, striking a match and you know burning off those woods, that's the best thing, but. Yeah, um, when it comes to predator management, I definitely believe in it. I just unfortunately haven't had the chance to implement it. It's one of those things to to take time to to educate yourself on if if you are going to consider incorporating predator management as a, as a part of the the puzzle for how you're going to manage your property. Um, I mean, you're absolutely right. Everything in the world loves to eat turkeys and loves to eat quail. I mean, from from some of your meso predators, your your possums and your raccoons and your foxes and bobcats and all of that to snakes to other birds hawks um you know even even some of your your critters that you would normally think of as hunters you know or yeah buzzards um if i mean turkeys and quail when they're young when they're eggs and then you know that 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 first stage of their life they're extremely vulnerable and everything loves to eat them um you know coyotes you touched on it's like people love to shoot coyotes i love to shoot coyotes but the reality is, I, I, I'm blanking on the term for it, but coyotes have a, a very specific reproductive um, means by which if, if they, if as a population, they experience pressure, they will actually start to have higher, you know, higher number of pups in their litter to respond to that pressure. And so if you're going to get serious about coyote management, for instance, you're going to have to incorporate an aggressive trapping program because it's, it's damn near impossible to just shoot enough um, coyotes to really make a dent in the population unless you and all your neighbors and you know everyone in the in the vicinity is going to make a really concerted effort to do a lot of coyote hunting so you know that's that's kind of a you know something to understand about coyotes specifically um, but you know I mean you touched on it it's like if you're if you're managing the habitat appropriately if you if you're you know strategically timing these burns where they're going to have minimal impacts on the turkeys 
but maximum impacts on improving the the cover and the habitat for the turkeys when they're at that most vulnerable life stage, then it's not that you don't have to worry about predators, but you can, you can tackle that problem from a different approach. No, absolutely. I do agree, Perry. And I'm glad you touched on the the neighbor aspect because I mean, you know, the one property I have is 61 acres and the other one's 105. So really it's, it's not a lot of land. And if it's a deer or a turkey or a coyote, I mean, that's just a drop in the bucket in the actual area these animals live. You know, a buck's core range, you know, from these GPS collars, it could be 60 acres, it could be 500 acres, right? And especially with these coyote populations as well, it's, you know, you could have a phenomenal trapping and um, just go out there and go shooting them all, right? But like you said, they're going to reproduce and their home ranges are so massive. And even if you kill them all, they're just going to fill the void and uh, come in. So basically coyotes from a mile away are going to come and, you know, take uh, refuge in the sanctuary you've created because there's no other competition for them. So that's when it's good to go contact your neighbors, especially this time of year right now when it's not hunting season, you know, establish a relationship with these neighbors. Uh, Maybe they will give you permission or even, you know, you can get permission for tracking a deer in October, right? The best time to meet your neighbors tomorrow and it's not at, you know, 10 o'clock at night and you're knocking on their door in full camo and they're like, you know, who is this guy? He's like, well, I, you know, I live next door. I hunt the property next door. You know, that was one of the first things I did with the, the one property was I met all the neighbors. Unfortunately, I, I had to because we had a pretty extensive trespassing problem. But, you know, I know all the neighbors, I have all their phone numbers and, you know, we've all kind of met. And so uh, we've actually shot a couple of does and obviously 61 acres, you know, it's pretty easy for them to run off the property. And it's no problem for to shoot a text message or a phone call and just be like, hey, you know, if you see any lights on your property, that's us right now. And it's like, oh, OK, not a problem. So that's that's a key component. And to just kind of add on to that real quick, it's uh, I mean, you can establish uh, either a formal or an informal co-op, whether it's for deer management, turkey management, quail uh, and predators as well. So, you know, we may not all be fortunate enough to own, you know, a thousand acres, but if you match up with enough like-minded neighbors, you know, you can all collectively own a thousand acres, right. Without having to pay for it. Yeah, that's huge. And that's fantastic advice. It's really important. And putting in the effort to establish a, a good relationship, a working relationship with your neighbors is worth every second that you invest. Cause when it's game time, like on six acres, you said 61, but on si- my six acres, it is real freaking easy for that deer to go whoop right over the fence. And, uh, for it's only happened twice out of the five that have been taken on my property, but it is a very easy and I get nervous every single time because I just like I don't want to deal with confrontation and I don't want to be calling my neighbor at whatever 7 p.m. And hey, man, can I go track this thing on your property? But, you know, you have to because when when you need to make that call, you need to be able to make that call. And so my neighbors and I have worked out a really good deal. Well, one neighbor I'm very friendly with and he's a huge hunter. And my other neighbor or the guy who hunts the property, we got into a bit of a screaming match and he accused me of trespassing and it, it was a it was terrible and I was on my own property and I got heated and I was screaming at him and I was like whatever I'm on my own property it was a, it was a mess 
we patched it up kind of. Um, but the three of us, kind of like you said, you know, there's a 80 acre property, there's a 42 acre property, there's a 50 acre property. And then there's me kind of right in the middle of my little six acres. And, but I have the pond, so I get a lot of deer traffic. Um, but having a game plan amongst all of us, like we will trade trail cam pictures and, um, you know, talk about all the names that we have for all these bucks and like, Oh yeah, that's the 12 pointer. Like that's whatever. Um, and I, you know, I don't want to be that guy who's shooting every small eight pointer. So I, I learned real quick, like, all right, these guys are serious. I, uh, if this is part of our local management plan, I don't want to be the guy to screw that up. No, absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's key. And unfortunately you can't pick your neighbors, but you know, you can establish relationships and, and try and educate them. Right. Um, our old neighbor to the North, he was, uh, I'll just, he was very well off and he would travel the country and, uh, go deer hunt. So he's, he showed me his trophy room and the smallest buck was like 150 inches. I was like, okay. So, because basically how this conversation spurred was, uh, there was this, he was probably 135, maybe 140 inch eight pointer. And, you know, I'd been watching him and I was tagged out. So I was just making sure he was staying alive for next year. Well, he shows up on camera one morning and there's, you know, like in the no man's land, there was a hole essentially where it looked like a broadhead had gone through. So I knew he was, he was basically only an archer, die hard, and, you know, wouldn't pick up a gun to shoot a deer. And I texted him a picture of the deer with, you know, that hole. And I said, Hey, if you shot this buck, like he's still alive, I got him on camera. And his response was, I wouldn't pick up my bow for something that small. And so I was like, Okay. <laughs> wow. Oh, man. Man. What an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Some of us would do terrible things for a 135 inch deer here in North Georgia. So <laughs> I hope to have those kind of problems someday. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. He was uh, one of the best neighbors you could have, though, because he never hunted at all. And even if I knew he was going to go hunt, he was just going to go shoot some of the does for me. He wasn't going to shoot any of these bucks because there wasn't a buck over 140 inches on this property. (laughs) I got a quick story about the first deer that I like fell in love with on this property when I moved here. We moved here in November. I set up a blind the night that we moved our furniture into the house and I hunted the next morning. Right. And, uh, there was this buck with these insane brow tines and his main beam was palmated on one side. He's probably 140 inch deer. He's massive. And I called him too tall. Uh, I think cause I just have watched, we were soldiers and he reminded me of the, the tall pilot or whatever. And, uh, I was obsessed with this deer and I had, he showed up two times during the daylight in December. Um, and one time I was hung over on my couch and I didn't go hunt that morning. And the other time I was hunting up in Dahlonega. And so I missed it both those days. Um, and he was there for like a half hour. It, it would have been perfect. Biggest, biggest deer in Georgia I would ever see or kill. And so I obsessed over this deer for two years. And then when I finally went and met my neighbor, I was going to be sighting in my rifle when I drew an antelope tag to go out to Wyoming and I was like, oh, I'm just going to side in here at the house. That's fantastic. And I knew he had kids and they like to ride four wheelers and stuff like that. So kind of like what you were saying, you know, establish that relationship. So I grabbed some eggs from the chicken coop and I grabbed some stuff from the garden, some green beans and some tomatoes. And I ran over there uh, and he was out cutting grass and I met him and he was awesome. And we, of course, started talking about hunting immediately. And then he was like, come on in, man. Like, yeah, can I get you, can I get you a, a glass of water or anything? And we were talking and I walk in and immediately 
the first thing you see when you walk in is too tall. You see this deer that I obsessed over for two years on the wall. Um, like first thing you see against against the back wall when you walk in the front door. And he's like, you know that deer? I was like, oh, Chris, I, <laughs> I know that deer. I dream about that deer. This uh, My heart was broken. He could... I, was, I just must have looked absolutely crestfallen. And he's like, yeah, it's a nice deer. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it was a nice deer. It was a nice deer. Man, so funny uh, side note story about uh, like small property hunting and stuff like that. So, you know, like seek one, the whole big suburban bow hunting kind of thing. So I got into it because of them, right? So I got this one landscaping client. He has seven acres. And uh, his property backed up to where the Truett Cathy's main farm is. They had several hundred acres and well-managed orchards and everything, right? And so naturally, there's some massive, massive deer out there. No one's hunting. This is a neighborhood, you know, no HOA, but it's a neighborhood, right? So they had no rules. Basically, they were cool with me hunting, but none of the neighbors knew I was hunting. So there was one night, I, there was about three or four bucks that were I mean, show enough. I would, I would do some illegal stuff for him. Well, I'm sitting there and it's starting to get dark and I hear, you know, the classic footsteps, they're walking all around me. And, you know, by this point now it, it's dark, dark and it's too late. Well, <laughs> I guess it was still light enough in the neighbor's field. And I hear this little boy say to his dad, daddy, look at that giant buck. And he had skirted around me and walked into the neighbor's field. And this little kid is, you know, it's like, oh, look at how big this buck is. And I'm thinking, dang it, I didn't see him and he walked around me. And two, God forbid I had shot him and I just traumatized this little kid and this buck dies in their backyard. <laughs> and that was the last time I ever bow hunted a suburban property. Man, that's, I've, I've been, I've been following some of these suburban bow hunters and it like, it really intrigues me. And I wish like, I mean, hell, I, I work a lot in the Charlotte area and I've spent a lot of time down there and I've seen some really nice deer like in, you know, heck, not just in the suburbs, but like legitimately in the city, you know, in these, in these tiny little pockets of cover, like we talked about, like, you know, it's, it's got everything they need right there. It's like, man, I want to give it a try. I can't because there's no urban archery season in Charlotte, you know, the different municipalities have their own rules and they just don't allow it. But it's like, man, if you shot one, and it ran into the wrong person's yard. Oh, dude, you know it's going to go die on their front porch, oh, and it's going to be a disaster. Yeah. That'd be brutal. <laughs> my, my first afternoon ever bow hunting in the suburbs, one of I didn't know it, but one of uh, the guy's neighbors was a police officer, and he was testing his sirens, I guess, before going on his night shift. So he's basically sitting, because the property was in a cul-de-sac. He was sitting in the cul-de-sac, and he was just cycling through his sirens. And now I'm sitting here, I'm like, oh, fuck, is this a cop sitting in my truck trying to, like, get my attention to have me go over there? So I'm, like, peeking over, trying to look at the driveway, see if I see any police officers or anything like that. I mean, I'm absolutely traumatized, right? But, I mean, the whole suburban thing, I mean, it's it's totally different, right? A lot of times we go hunting to, to get away from it all. But I mean, you're, you're in the mix, you're in someone's backyard most of the time. So that's a whole, a whole aspect outside of having to track where this deer goes. Right. And 
I think in the suburban aspect, I hate to say it's better to ask uh, forgiveness rather than permission because a lot of these folks, you already know the answer. And I hate to say it, yeah. you know, you don't want to kill an animal and just let it go to waste and, you know, never retrieve it. But I unfortunately think a lot of these folks wouldn't allow you that permission. I mean, you might be able to talk your way out of it, and I think someone wouldn't want a dead deer in their backyard. But that's just <laughs> one of those things that it's like I would rather just you know go out in the woods not have to stress about anything like that and you know a lot of the folks out there are more like-minded than uh in the subdivisions I hate to say for sure and you know asking permission and establishing relationships with your neighbors kind of like we're talking about it kind of is a good segue into where we're at right now so it's middle of June and hunting season should be on everybody's mind so Kind of what is our what is our off season? What is our the the remainder of our summertime planning looking like, Brett, on your properties? Um, right now it's kind of just kind of hang tight. I mean, we got a heat index of 105, 110 right now. So Dude, right brutal. now, just, you know, yeah, I have some cameras out on mineral sites and different uh, corridors and stuff like that. So I'm kind of just taking inventory, seeing what survived, what didn't, um, and going from there. Um, looking at my food plots, you know, what I'm going to want to plant. And right now, um, I'm pretty heavily focused on that clover, but I'm going to start mixing in some brassicas to break up that uh, hard pan because the one uh, food plot was an old logging deck, right? So it's just compacted, um, you know, trashy cl- uh, clay soils. So I'm looking into that, and then, you know, I'll start broadcasting wheat and stuff into that. Um, but yeah, right now, like I said, you know, maybe try and branch out and meeting your neighbor's neighbors, see if you can get, you know, maybe permission to hunt that property. That's a good thing you can try and look into right now, you know, establish that relationship or even, you know, at the least bit, that's just someone else that can look out for your property. If they see someone trespassing or whatnot, um, that's just another person that you can kind of reach out to. Um, another thing is, like I said, you know, looking into uh, different stand sites and access points. Um, there's a couple new stand sites I want to set up, and there's one spot where it's it's pretty deep in the property and it's near a lot of bedding. So I'm going to set up a ground blind in there because I think ground blinds are a little better for shifty winds and it contains your scent a little bit better versus just like an open tree stand. Um, I know a deer's nose is better than a blood dog, so there's really – not that much you can do, but I feel if you can just keep your scent from blowing around, uh, you know, so establish different, uh, you know, stand sites and access points, um, and then just keep doing habitat work. Uh, there's a lot of spots I need to kill a bunch of privet hedge and, uh, still battling the sweet gums and kudzu, unfortunately. So that's going to consist of the rest of my habit habitat plans for the summer is killing, uh, kudzu and privet hedge and sweet gums you mentioned mineral sites and that's something that uh we've talked a little bit about before we've we've been doing that again the past couple of years on our on our farm up in virginia we had done it years ago when i was younger but we kind of got away from it for a while um i know it's it's a bit of a hot topic now you know should you do it should you not especially in areas of high deer density you know large populations of deer with concerns over CWD and some states have actually, you know, have regulations or have passed laws to, to, um, you know, to address that somewhat, or maybe, you know, certain counties have, et cetera. Is that something that uh, you've considered or, is, or 
where does Georgia stand on on mineral sites and then you know supplemental feeding you know later in the year as it relates to CWD concerns? Um, so it's definitely you know starting to creep into our minds because I know Alabama just had their first uh, CWD case, so Alabama just locked down their borders, and Alabama is like a forty minute drive from me, so that definitely hits close to home. You know, there's some public land in Alabama. Um, I definitely enjoyed hunting. So now that's a big aspect that I can't take a deer back to Georgia with me from Alabama. Um, but that's definitely something that I'm considering. Um, I mean, obviously summertime, you know, mineral sites and trail cameras, it's like peanut butter and jelly for, you know, a hunter. I mean, it's the easiest scouting you could ever do. You throw out, you know, a 50 pound tractor supply salt block and a trail camera and, you can see most of the the bucks and does within, you know, a substantial area right there. Right. So it's right now it's, you know, still legal and open for us to utilize. Um, and I still, you know, I still will, but unfortunately it's looking like in the next couple of years, that's something that's probably going to be taken away from us. Um, I don't personally think CWD will be here just yet, but it's one of those things I hate to say it's, just a matter of time and then with those prions there's nothing scientifically really that has been found to stop them or kill them right so it's one of those things and i just think that's where uh you know managing your herd density um you know and being a, a good conservationist and not you know putting out mineral sites and uh feeders where it's going to concentrate a lot of animals to one specific spot yeah, I, I agree with that, and I've I've kind of taken a similar approach. We're we're still going to do the minerals in Virginia. We actually have to have the minerals out by I think it's a month before opening day of archery or something like that. So it's this is the time of year they can be out, and you have to you know take them out. You can't bait or anything in Virginia, North Carolina, uh, where I hunt some. You still you still can, but North Carolina actually just had their first case of of confirmed positive CWD last year in a county that's honestly not that far from me um it's not immediately adjacent but it's just a few counties over so um i've i've i haven't i'm not concerned yet to the point where i'm changing my particular behaviors on the properties that i hunt um but it's it's a factor it, it is curious though and i'm always it, it's just one of those things i love to hear different people's opinions on because you do hear a lot of folks that are it, it's like the cwd runs the whole the whole spectrum some folks are freaking out about it some folks couldn't care less about it. But I always ask because, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. If, if you're doing that sound habitat or that sound population management, rather, um, you can, you can kind of mitigate some of that. And I, I always like to ask people when they, when they start freaking out about CWD, it's like, all right, well, how many does did you shoot this year? <laughs> and if, if you're not, if you're not really taking that doe management seriously, then you're not really addressing CWD the way you could be. No, absolutely. I mean, like you said, um, and I mean, kind of segueing into the habitat management, herd density management, something that a lot of folks I think don't know about or don't utilize is the trail camera surveys, right? That's another thing that the DMAT biologist uh, brought to my attention was establishing the trail camera surveys where, you know, let's say with a 61 acre piece, you put one trail camera on a bait site at the front and one at the back. And typically you want to do this about twice a year. I like doing it around like 
August, September, and then once in like December, January ish. Um, typically, you can see obviously your does really aren't that mobile. They're gonna stay there. They're not gonna really shift their ranges too extensively. Whereas obviously your bucks are gonna shift pretty aggressively. They typically shift um, in November when that velvet sheds and that testosterone spikes. I've seen them shift uh, a mile, two miles. Sometimes they don't shift at all. It just depends on that personal buck and his home range. And then obviously um, in the wintertime, sometimes their summer and winter areas are a little different. So I want to see what my density is in the summertime versus, you know, the uh, the late wintertime after the rut. And it's easier to do when the bucks have their horns on so you can differentiate bucks and does and which buck is which kind of. But that's definitely something that's, um, been eye-opening for me is just managing how many bucks and how many does I have, how many deer are on this property. Um, and, you know, just between from even the CWD aspect to the habitat aspect, um, right now it's difficult for me to grow food plots because even though we've killed um, 11, 11 deer off this property in two years and I still can't grow two and a half acres worth of food plots because the browse pressure is that intense. And another thing is you can look at the either the native or even the invasive uh, plants. And we have a bunch of kudzu ironically growing on privet hedge. And there's a browse line because kudzu is in the uh, like the soybean lab lab family. So it, this time of year, it's pretty high in protein and it's a desirable food source. And you could see the browse line on the kudzu where, you know, it's growing on this privet hedge. And that's just one of those things where it's like, I've killed this many deer, but I'm still not really putting that much of a dent into it. So that's where, you know, talking to your neighbors and this co-op thing, it's it's extremely important because legally I can only kill, I mean, two bucks and 10 does in Georgia. And obviously I can bring friends and family out here, but on 61 acres, it can only sustain so much hunting pressure. And obviously, you know, you don't want to put too much hunting pressure on your property so you can branch out to your neighbors and say, Hey, listen, you know, if you guys want to shoot some does, I think we need to, that'd be the best thing for us type deal. What I'm hearing is Perry and I need to come down for a weekend this fall. Come smack a couple of does. I, I, I was hearing the same thing. That's funny. Oh, absolutely. We'll make it happen now. <laughs> oh, that's awesome, man. That's so spot on. And, and it's, I love when everything's, well based in education and understanding and then you know the approach of educating your neighbors as well and you know when everybody's pulling in the same direction that's when management and conservation kind of meet at a beautiful crossroads and you know lead to better hunting success for all of us in the future yeah that's that's exactly right and it's you know i've i've been telling I've been telling Luke and Evan for the past few years, similar thoughts. It's like, I don't, I don't think we're killing enough does. I keep, keep hearing all these, um, all these rumblings and all this talk of, of CWD. And it's like, we have, we have high, high deer density. We have relatively good habitat. There's, there's things we can do and we're trying to do to make it better. Um, I, you know, I, one of those indicators, I, I love that, uh, the D map is that, is that the right yes, acronym? Yeah, I love that they they encourage and they help you with those trail cam surveys. But like one of the things that that I've noticed, and maybe I've just paying more attention now than I used to. But it's like we're I'm seeing 
the past few years, I'm still seeing a ton of, of young bucks, um, seeing, you know, spikes and forkies and, and little six pointers, one, you know, half year old, one and a half, two, two and a half year old bucks. And so it, it's telling me there's not so many does that they're dispersing all the young bucks, you know, so far to, to, uh, because that, you know, that carrying capacity, it hasn't been met yet. But I think, um, I think if you're not actively considering that as part of the bigger, bigger formula, you're doing, you know, you're doing yourself and, and really the, the long-term future of, of the, the sport or, or this, you know, this passion of ours, a disservice. Um, just want to make sure folks out there don't go start planting kudzu for the high protein content that they, they do, they do eat it, but find something native, find something better than kudzu. That shit will take over in a hurry. Yeah, no, please don't. The kudzu, uh, it, it sounds good at first, but when, <laughs> when it's killing all your trees and taking over, you're you're going to regret it. I mean, you could plant soybeans, lab lab, um, you know, sun hemp, so many other things that are, you know, more beneficial to wildlife and um, uh, not invasive. Well, boys, we're rolling up on two hours here, which is freaking awesome. This is the longest one I've done uh, in a minute. And uh Definitely can't complain about talking about things I love hearing about. Um, but we're coming up on the end of part two of or what will be part two of this episode. And Brett, I can't thank you enough for jumping on with us, man. This has been awesome. And I, I knew you were the guy to come on here and talk. And I knew Perry was the guy to come on here and talk with you, man. And, uh, you know, we just can't thank you enough for jumping on here and sharing your knowledge. No, absolutely. It was an absolute pleasure. And thank you so much for uh you know, having me on, it's it's a pleasure. First ever podcast, so thanks for uh, dealing with me and my ramblings. Hopefully, it wasn't too bad. <laughs> no, I love it, man. I love it. There's uh, that's so all much we inf- do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's so much information in this one, man. Folks are gonna have to listen to it twice because there's some real good stuff here. And if you manage your own property or you want to start managing your hunting properties better, more efficiently, there's a ton uh, that you can glean here. Um, great little nuggets of information dropped from Brett and Perry here. Um, before we jump off here, Perry, you got any, uh, you got any closing thoughts for us? Yeah. Um, echo what you said, really appreciate you coming on, Brett. It was nice to meet you through, through a podcast. Um, love to love to do it in person sometime. And yeah, it's, I, this is the stuff I can geek out over hardcore. It's, it's always fun to, to, uh, to chat about these, these topics. And I mean, dude, I, I, I think it's awesome that you guys are, are doing this, this property management on, on these, you know, relatively small pieces of, of property. It, it, it puts the message out there. That's like you said, Brett, you don't have to have that, that sexy 500,000 acre piece of dirt to actually go out there, implement some specific strategies, see some, you know, see some results in real time and then be able to, you know, capitalize on that with, with, um, you know, with, with taking a deer that you've invested in and that's man, what a, what a rewarding feeling. So appreciate you coming on chatting about it. We'll definitely have to do it again. There's, I'm sure there's a couple more hours that we could unpack in some of this stuff. Heck yeah, man. We'll do it in person over a beer sometime this fall too. For sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, y'all help me kill some does. Yeah. Yeah, man. We'll come <laughs> help you kill some does. What about you, Brett? You got any closing thoughts for us? Uh, no, I mean, like I said, it was an absolute pleasure meeting you, Perry, and talking, hunting with you boys. And, uh, I hope we can do it again in the future. Heck yeah, man. We'll make it happen. And, uh, 
I'm the guy to talk to. We'll make it happen. Uh, Brett, where can folks find you on Instagram if they want to drop you a follow? Uh, check me out. I think it's Brett Burrito. Brett underscore Burrito. And uh, <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So if you want to see some uh, pictures of dead animals, just hit me with a follow. <laughs> um, those are our people. That's That's what we like to see. Perry, you want to drop your Instagram or are we going to get you to a thousand followers? Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we're trying I keep dropping it, but you got to post something every once in a while, I think to, to really affect the algorithm. So I gotta, I gotta get better about that, but yeah, it's, it's a uh, Perry.r.eisner. Um, I, I missed out on the, the underscore with the, the Mexican food. I might have to change it to Perry underscore taco or something. <laughs> big, big taco guy right here. I, like I love it. it. I like it. I love it. I appreciate it, guys. Uh, I have no idea when this one is going to come out. So, uh, listeners, if it's past July 15th, that means the Hunt, Lift, Eat summer drop has already happened. So go check out our new merchandise. Go buy something sweet. If it hasn't happened yet, get pumped and get ready for <laughs> July 15th for the drop. Hell yeah. and, then, and then go check it out and purchase something. Um, but as always, we appreciate the hell out of you guys, and we'll talk to you guys next week.